Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret Change is coming to the Department of Health and Human Services as Secretary Kathleen Sebelius announced her resignation. And she did preside over a major transition in the way the United States approaches healthcare. The problems with the launch of the federal exchange, healthcare.gov, have continued to be a thorny issue, but the president commended Secretary Sebelius for extraordinary work and noted that despite the myriad challenges at the launch of the website, she and her team did manage to turn things around, and the numbers speak for themselves. We've exceeded the sign-up goal of $7 million. And, Mark, I think it's about $7.5 million have signed up at last count for insurance. And counting. She really did oversee a monumental shift in health care in this country. And in spite of the technical challenges, she did exceed the administration's sign-up goals. The president has tapped White House Budget Office Director Sylvia Matthews Burwell to take over the Department of Health and Human Services, pending confirmation from the Senate. Well, the Harvard-educated Burwell was confirmed just last April as the White House Budget Office Director. She's also held high positions at several foundations in the past, including the Walmart Foundation. It's really thought very highly of in most circles. But as you know, politics continue to play a significant role in the execution of the health care law, so confirmation will likely focus in on the problems that still linger from the health rollout. But the change of guard comes at a timely juncture before the midterm elections kick into high gear. The health care law is certain to play a Essential role in the campaign as it has over the last four or five years. Well, it will be interesting to see exactly what the picture that is painted is. You know, not only did the number of folks who signed up on the exchanges exceed the administration's expectations, but there's a, another interesting number to factor in. An estimated 7.8 million Americans gained their health coverage directly through insurance carriers, and that number is a big boon for the insurance industry. I would think they'll be feeling pretty positive. I think you're right, Margaret, and it turns out millions of Americans Americans who might not have qualified for a tax subsidy on the insurance exchange gain coverage through private insurers. So in all, the number of newly covered Americans could be far more significant than originally thought. And it's important to note, Mark, where the exchanges did function very well. California and New York are two, and our home state of Connecticut all are held up as models of effective state-based exchanges, and other states may want to emulate them. Connecticut in particular, our Access Health Connecticut system is being adopted by the state of Maryland, which had problems from the start and is now scrapping their system in favor of the Connecticut plan that really worked very well. Our guest today is the man behind the curtain, behind the Connecticut Exchange Access Health CT, Kevin Cunahan, who has a long history in the insurance exchange arena and can provide some unique insights into what made the Connecticut Exchange work so well and why other states are looking into adopting our system. Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org will be checking in with another misstatement about healthcare policy that's been spoken in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Kevin Cunahan in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. Mariano Hare with these health care headlines. Sibelius is out as Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, stepping down from her leadership post after the rocky rollout of the online insurance marketplaces under the Affordable Care Act. Her resignation was met with praise from President Obama, who said that in spite of the many challenges at the launch of healthcare.gov, her team managed to turn things around in November and righted the rocking health care portal. 
though much of that turnaround can be credited to the team of IT experts assembled by Jeff Zients, who was appointed by the president to fix the troubled health care site. Sebelius's chosen replacement is Sylvia Matthews Burwell, appointed just last year as the director of the White House Budget Office. Burwell is highly regarded in many circles and has already been vetted for her previous government post. Her appointment must pass muster from a Senate confirmation hearing. In the meantime, the numbers continue to climb. The number of Americans who gained health coverage under the Affordable Care Act and the online exchanges, that number has reached 7.5 million so far. And another 7.8 million Americans appear to have gained coverage privately through insurance brokers directly during the open enrollment period. Those who found they didn't qualify for subsidies were more likely to seek coverage off the government-run exchanges. And what about the costs of running those exchanges? The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office has determined costs for the continued implementation of provisions under the Affordable Care Act are considerably less for the coming years, about $104 billion less over the next 10-year period. That's in part because premiums on plans purchased through the state and federal exchanges are expected to be lower than prior estimates, spelling lower federal subsidies for individuals who make up to 400 percent of the federal poverty threshold. The Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act is expected to cost $36 billion in 2014. That's $5 billion less than previously anticipated. They're here and they're quickly proliferating. E-cigarettes, that is, and the trend is disturbing. The rapidly expanding e-cigarette market, those electronic cigarettes with the fake light at the end of the tip, emitting nicotine vapor into the lungs of those who inhale with flavors like bubblegum and such, It's quickly infiltrating a young, vulnerable population who must adhere to strict anti-smoking laws, which do not govern this latest smoking fad. Lawmakers once again have called for action by the Food and Drug Administration to regulate the electronic cigarette industry, issuing a congressional report that showed increased marketing of e-cigarettes directly to youth. The report, released by 11 Democratic lawmakers, proposes shielding children and teenagers from e-cigarette advertising and restricting availability. So far, the cigarette industry has spent about $60 million in targeted campaigns aimed at young people with such things as rock concert sponsorships. Suggestions include restricting the use of television, radio, and social media promotion and requiring age verification and face-to-face sales of e-cigarettes. And the study showed a direct correlation between exposure to those ads for e-cigarettes and the numbers of young people who take up actual smoking. I'm Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Kevin Cunahan, Chief Executive Officer of the Connecticut Health Insurance Exchange, also known as Access Health CT, one of the most successful of the 16 set up under the Affordable Care Act. Before that, Mr. Cunahan was the president of Choice Administrators in California, the nation's leading developer of health insurance exchanges. Mr. Cunahan served as the chief marketing officer for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Health Insurance Connector Authority, where he facilitated the state's rollout of near universal coverage in 2006. Prior to that, he was the senior VP of the Tufts Health Plan. Mr. Cunahan earned his undergraduate degree from the University of Michigan and his MBA in finance from Northwestern's University's Kellogg School of Management. Kevin, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Oh, thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure. You know, March Madness is over, and I think it's fair to say Connecticut won three national championships, the men and the women, and I think on the exchange side, the Connecticut Access Health CT. So tell us what worked, what didn't work and some of the more important numbers to take away from this initial experience. So going back to October feels like it's going back five years, but 
things that I think we, we did reasonably well was we got a, a basically stable system that's mind-numbingly complicated, uh, up and running. It had been tested. Uh, defects had been corrected. So when we flicked the, the light switch on October 1st, we had something where people could go on to the website, they could comparison shop, they could enroll for coverage, and, and their eligibility can be established at the at, with the insurance companies. This was deliberately done because we stripped back about 30% of our desired functionality in order to make sure that we could deliver something that was less than what we wanted but uh, being done more consistently. So I think we did that reasonably well. I think number two is standardizing plan designs for the three metal tiers was extremely helpful for consumers because consumers find buying health insurance to be very confusing and complicated. And by freezing the variable around plan design, they knew they were buying the same coverage was extremely helpful to consumers. I think another element that worked well was our marketing and outreach. For example, the work that we did training about 1,000 brokers, having over 300 in-person assisters, having a call center which took in 22% of our applications, and uh, it was clearly a statewide effort to get us where we are. Well, Kevin, you've had uh, such significant experience uh, in this arena leading up to your time here in Connecticut, both in Massachusetts with the 2006 health care law and then in California with choice administrators. I would imagine you've had a chance to see what works on a macro level and a micro level, and I think that made it all the surpri- all the more surprising to me that a state like Massachusetts uh, ran into so much trouble on this round. Why was this so much more complicated than what Massachusetts rolled out back in 2006? And I'm also going to ask you to explain what you mean by metal tiers for our listeners. Well, first let me begin with a second question. So the metal tiers, are, which were gold, silver, and bronze, represent the richness and the expense of the uh, insurance plans. So a gold plan is richer and has richer coverage than silver, which is more expensive and richer coverage than bronze. You know, there are no winners and losers in any of this stuff. I think everybody tried under very complicated circumstances to, to make these things work. I think in general, the states that were maybe a little less ambitious in terms of the services that they wanted to provide uh, out of the gate, in general, had a little easier time than those that were a little bit more ambitious. The Massachusetts Connector actually was a very good example of the policy principles of health reform, and the Affordable Care Act was clearly based on uh, health reform in Massachusetts, or what had been called Romney Care. But the web portal itself was much more like e-health or a relatively simple, and I say relatively because it was still complicated, but relatively simple way for people to shop and compare and to enroll. But it did not have the complexity of integrated eligibility determinations, whereby an individual in real time could be determined for either Medicaid coverage, subsidy coverage, or unsubsidized commercial coverage. So those different complexities of the Affordable Care Act really make it a, a much different animal than what the connector had. I, I like the sort of concept that you started off with. It's, you uh, noted that the consumer is at the heart of all these, and they find uh, this a purchasing process to be complicated. And so your mantra was to keep things simple. And uh, certainly there were right strategic, but it also came down to procuring the right technology, both the hardware and software. And what led you to, to develop the system the way you did in Connecticut? And talk to us a little bit about the technology platform that you were utilizing. So you really hit it, Mark, which is that with really most consumer activities, it's best to default to simplicity. Now, buying health insurance, by definition, is not simple. And people that buy health insurance they tend to be very suspicious of just about everybody in the value chain. They just don't understand why this should be as expensive as it is. But if you can make something as simple as possible 
uh, and make it as consumer-friendly as possible, it brings much more credibility to the purchasing process. The consumer has more trust in what they're buying if they think they can understand it. So it's, it's important not only from a technology perspective to keep things simple, but also from a marketing perspective to keep things simple. So that was sort of a mantra that we had. So we wanted to do fewer things consistently well and default to those things that were most valued by the customer. So, for example, we outsourced uh, and have outsourced a lot of functionality which other states have not done, whether it's premium and billing to the consumer, whether it's commission payments to the broker, whether it's the call center, uh, whether it's the vendor for administering small business exchange. We've outsourced all those things to other vendors because our view is we want to focus on the thing that makes the most difference to the consumer, which is an easy and satisfying shopping experience. And to that regard, the data around this is encouraging. So, for example, based on a, uh, the most recent month's survey of consumers who've enrolled in our platform, we have a 92% overall satisfaction rate. But within that, 70% of enrollees say that they would be either extremely likely or very likely to recommend Access Health CT to a friend or colleague. That's a really critical metric because that type of viral marketing or support or reference by a friend or family member goes much further than any advertisement anyone could run. Absolutely. Kevin, you referenced something that I was just about to ask you about, and that's an area that I think has been fairly confusing, uh, perhaps because of the uh, changes in dates and deadlines around the small business mandate. So as I understand it now, the Affordable Care Act mandate around small business offering coverage was delayed until 2015, and it will eventually require companies with more than 50 employees to provide access to insurance coverage for their employees, but still quite a bit of confusion about that. So how have you approached the small business community in the exchange in Connecticut? Have there been viable options for that sector of the population? We were one of five states that had a viable small business insurance exchange up and running on October 1st, and we did it, as I said, by outsourcing it. Had we known that the feds were going to defer their own effective date for the, the coverage by a year, we may have done the same thing. We may have done something a little bit differently. But we did get up and running by October 1st. Our enrollment in, in the small business exchange has been disappointing to me. We're not being as effective in that market as we can be. Now, clearly the market gets confused every time the federal government, for example, defers a mandate. It all sends a, a message kind of cascading that this is either not functional or is being deferred or being delayed or being eliminated. So all those things we and other states have to counteract. But I think that there's a whole lot more that we need to do to be more effective in providing products to small businesses. And we're, we're very close to finishing a new plan to, to do just that. We're speaking today with Kevin Cunahan, Chief Executive Officer of the Connecticut Health Insurance Exchange, also known as Access Health CT, one of the most successful of the 16 state-based insurance exchanges set up under the Affordable Care Act. Kevin, the health care law isn't just about providing insurance coverage and access to care. It's also about improving population health and harnessing the power of health data. And I understand you're working on a project with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to follow these newly insured residents. So they are key measures. So talk to us a little bit about the key measures you'll be looking at in the health data and how do you see this analysis impacting health and uh, health equity moving forward? The point of, of saying that the Affordable Care Act is is more than just about providing access to insurance is, is 100% correct. And we're in the, in the final throes of, of a finalizing a research vehicle that we're going to be making 3,000 phone calls uh, to residents in our state 
to assess several things. So one is going to be insurance status. So we need to determine what the impact of the over 200,000 people that we've enrolled has been on the uninsured level in our state. So the national average of the uninsured in, in the country is 18%. And we know that a third of the, of the uninsured reside in three states, Florida, Texas, and California. Now, only one of those states, California, has expanded Medicaid coverage as well as putting up a viable exchange. But in our state, we began with an uninsured level of 8%, or about 286,000, which, again, is relatively low. Now, is it as low as the 2.8% of Massachusetts? No, but no other state is. But we believe that we're going to make a significant dent in the level of the uninsured uh, in our state after this research is done. The second is on the impact in improving, narrowing the gap on uh, race and ethnicity. So, for example, we know based on other state data, it's not state of Connecticut data, but uh, think tank data has been done by state, mm -hmm. that there's roughly a 14% disparity in care access in our state between Caucasians and non-Caucasians. So roughly 90% of Caucasians in Connecticut have routine access to health insurance coverage, where about 76% of Latinos and African Americans and other non-Caucasian groups do. So narrowing that 76 to 90 is clearly going to be a major focus of this research and understanding. In fact, have we made any dents in, in doing just that? Third is going to be understanding people's healthcare knowledge. So for example, just because you've enrolled somebody doesn't mean they know how to use the coverage. And a lot of the terms that we all take for granted, whether it's copay, deductible, coinsurance, all that stuff, the newly insured don't take that for granted. Not only that, they don't even understand what those terms mean and they find them very confusing. So we want to be able to understand in essence the health insurance literacy. And we want to start tracking to see how many people are starting to take advantage of the incentives to get primary care visits, which, as you know, are, are free, and to incent people to have those routine checkups. The, my view, and I'd be interested in, in your folks' view as well, is that implementation of this law is a four- to five-year process. Mm -hmm. It's going to be evaluated and judged, right or wrong, you know, every single week, without a lot of data, by the way. But that doesn't seem to matter these days. But we all have to, I think, have goals in mind for what we, we want to be, for example, my goal, I would like to see our uninsured level be about 3% in five years. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's very tangible. And it's very very realistic. Well, I really applaud the focus on uh, making sure that you're doing the research early on because this is a unique moment in history. And we saw Oregon gave us some of this natural history research when they had their Medicaid program where people were signed on a random basis to see what difference does coverage make. And the fact that you're looking at the patient and the consumer experience um, and literacy is really critical. So we'll look forward to those results. And, you know, Kevin, I, I can't help but think that uh, the country certainly is weary of groups that are in conflict with each other. And when we hear that states are beginning to look to each other for help with their best practices and looking at adopting those best practices versus creating things from the ground up with all that expense and risk, it's great to hear that you're thinking that you can maybe export the uh, Connecticut exchange. I think you've referred to it as exchange in a box. And we mentioned earlier that at least one state's looking to adopt the software uh, that you created for the Connecticut exchange. And those are the folks in Maryland. Tell us about this collaboration and maybe expand this to uh, what your thoughts are as you look around the country um, with a lot of other states that may decide to do their own state exchange versus being the federal exchange or uh, states that haven't had a great experience. What's the level of kind of collaboration and best practice building that's going on among the states? 
Well, it's a it's a great question, and it's a complicated one, only because our experience with this stuff so far is that a lot of it has to do with pride and ego, and 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 sometimes it's easier to. Oh no, not pride and ego. I know it's it's hard to imagine, right? I mean, we've talked to probably six or seven states right now, and actually two two more called last week that they want to talk, and and this is all about 2016 uh, now, fortunately. But um, you, you know, it's it's. And, and I believe me, I, I I think we all feel for these folks. It's just what you know. You work so hard on something, and when it doesn't work, you know, you you take it kind of personally, or you think, you know, and then somebody else did work, and they say, "Gee, would you like to, you know, use our system?" And they look at you and they say, "You know, we're just as smart as you are." And we and we say, if we say to them, "You know what? You're probably smarter." <laughs> and and the fact, an example of that would be if you were to actually outsource this project, because building this system and this application, to be frank. Um, Margaret was actually not that much fun, and our whole team said if we could have outsourced this to another state and used their technology, <laughs> we would have done it in a New York minute. So um, we have begun with one state, as you said, with the state of Maryland, and we have a signed deal with them. Um, it's a very aggressive timeline to get them to the uh, November 15th open enrollment date. Um, there's, um, they're also using Deloitte, which is the same folks that built our system, and we're helping them on a variety of different uh, operational and marketing and technical issues. And, you know, we're very hopeful that this is going to work. You know, one of the challenges for uh, exchanges across the country, we're dealing with the foreign language issues, certainly the uh, Latino and Asian communities in Connecticut had had delays as other states did. Uh, Were there any best practices out there for for folks who got it right in uh, speaking multiple languages? And how do you feel like we're doing now? And uh, that this is certainly a very large part of the population uh, as you as you look across the country that uh, needs to be addressed? So that's another great question. And from my perspective, I think we're just beginning to compile those best practices. Uh, for example, I was talking to my counterpart in California last week, and he was talking a bit about how much, um, you know, what they've learned from um, outreach to the Latino population, because that was one where there was a slow start. Um, I, I think that we're still learning on this. I think it's one of the reasons it's going to take uh, several years uh, before this implementation is completed. We know, for example, that certain populations are very suspicious of government and very suspicious of giving too much information because they're afraid that it might lead to um, deportation or other types of things. And so there's, in, within some communities, there's sort of an institutional or cultural resistance uh, to uh, federal programs and a suspicion. Um, we also know, uh, we've learned about the importance of the family. So, for example, we know that the average uninsured in our state is a 39-year-old Hispanic male living in Bridgeport. And w- with that type of you know, demographic and such, we know that the best way to reach that 39-year-old Hispanic male is through his, is through his mother um, because the mother tends to be extremely influential and more than more than friends and um, and more than yeah, and peers, so there's there's a lot of subtlety. You know, it's it's funny. Like we've got a person on staff that's dedicated to um, Hispanic uh, outreach, and she often reminds us that that in dealing with that, you're dealing not with one segmented uh, community. You're dealing with 14 communities, half of whom don't talk to each other. So you have to think of, and, and you folks probably are more familiar with this as well, you have to deal with these communities individually. Mm-hmm. You have to do it in a way that's culturally acceptable. 
it usually is best to be done from the ground up, meaning with people that are in the community, that are known and respected. I think one of the things that we've learned, and I'd be interested in your reaction to this too, is that the traditional government, one-size-fits-all, top-down approach is really not that effective anymore. Mm-hmm. Our community and our country is so diverse that, that a, that a bottom-up, community-based approach mm-hmm. is both cheaper and probably more effective. We've been speaking today with Kevin Cunahan, Chief Executive Officer of the Connecticut Health Insurance Exchange, also known as Access Health CT. You can learn more about their work by going to accesshealthct.com. Kevin, thank you for the great job you've done, and thank you for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. I would like to thank both of you for your tremendous support. We could not have done any of this without you two and your team. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, President Barack Obama went too far in saying the Affordable Care Act meant everybody would have basic health care. The law doesn't create a universal health care system. Everyone will not have insurance. In fact, 31 million are expected to remain uninsured, according to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. Obama made the comment in announcing that 7.1 million Americans had signed up for insurance on the federal and state marketplaces through March 31st, the end of the open enrollment period. That figure was later updated to 7.5 million. Obama boasted of the progress made, but then said that the Affordable Care Act, quote, is making sure that we are not the only advanced country on earth that doesn't make sure everybody has basic health care. But under the ACA, the U.S. is still one of just a few advanced nations that don't have universal coverage. The law does greatly reduce the number of uninsured in the United States. The Congressional Budget Office estimates that there will be 25 million fewer uninsured because of the law as early as 2016, but that still leaves 31 million uninsured. Some may choose to pay the tax penalty rather than buy insurance. Others will get an exemption due to financial hardships or other reasons, such as qualifying for Medicaid but living in a state that didn't expand the program. Obama said in his remarks that the goal was for no American to be without health care and that the goal is achievable. It may be, but not with this law alone. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, Email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Much emphasis has been paid of late to the dangers of distracted driving. A number of states have enacted laws banning texting and driving, which has led to a number of traffic deaths across the country. But what about distracted walking? A recent in-depth study conducted by safekids.org showed some pretty startling statistics. Older teens now account for over half of all pedestrian deaths of children. And one of the main culprits? 
distracted walking. We saw a 25% increase in teen fatalities within the last five years, and that's what alarmed us. And we did an observational study where we collected data from over 34,000 observations of middle schoolers and high schoolers while they were walking in a school zone and crossing the street. We saw that one in five high school students were distracted um, by using their mobile device. They were either texting, using headphones, or talking on their cell phone. And we saw one in eight middle schoolers also uh, doing the same thing. Kate Carr is president and CEO of SafeKids.org, whose mission is to find the best ways to keep kids safe. Of the tens of thousands of kids they observe walking to school in various different neighborhoods, almost 40% were seen crossing the street while texting, talking talking on their phone, listening to music with headphones, or playing with some gaming device. She decided there needed to be a campaign to promote better awareness to reduce the trend, and they created a moment of silence. This campaign is a reminder to uh, especially teens. They're 50% of the fatalities in kids under the age of 19. But for everybody who's distracted while walking, put that device down. Create a moment of silence when you're crossing a street or you're on a sidewalk or in a parking lot around cars. Put your device down. Take your headphones or your earbuds out. She realizes that kids, especially teens, will not be separated from their mobile devices. But if they could just put them down while walking across the street or through intersections, engage in a moment of silence, the number of teen pedestrian deaths would be greatly reduced. She's urging parents and pediatricians alike to access their site, safekids.org, for more details about a moment of silence campaign and bring that message home to kids. A simple slogan-based campaign to raise awareness about the dangers of distracted walking, that has potential to save the lives of child pedestrians and adults for that matter. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.